Hi, Steminists. Just a quick trigger warning before we start the episode. This episode deals with suicide and murder. Just FYI. So enjoy the show. And welcome back to a spooky episode of STEM Fatal. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I am your other co-host, <laughs> Dr. Emma Dilemma. Oh gosh, okay, I'm not keeping this up, Emlyn. <laughs> Okay. No, we should. <laughs> you are. You got it. No, I think people would be like, "And I'm out." Yeah, <laughs> I'm that's done. it. That's it. Um. Yeah, but this is one of our special spooky Halloween episodes, and I'm very so excited. Oh my gosh, I'm excited. I need Halloween more than anything. I am currently trying to figure out how to social distance do trick or treating. Yeah. So Wait, we're trying to figure you, out. You're not. Gonna I'm not going to. Okay. No, no. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm trying to give children candy from <laughs> afar. I've seen A tubes. <laughs> People might use tubes. Like you could get some maybe PVC pipe or something. Yeah. The so candy down the pipe. Yes, so there's there's a tube, there's a potato launcher, which might kill a child, so that's, yeah, that's dangerous. <laughs> We've also been thinking of putting on a putting a big robe on and getting um you know those like trash glove like trash little collectors that you like they're like long arms that you oh, can pick yeah, up trash yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Putting those in like a glove and so I have this like really creepy long arm I can hand candy out oh, to children that would with. Work. Yeah. Yeah, so a claw, basically. Yeah, some type of long claw. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Trick or treating, miss it. I miss it sometimes. I do too. I mostly miss Halloween parties, but that's not going to happen this year. So I miss Halloween parties, and you guys used to do really fun escape rooms. I miss Mm -hmm. that. Uh, one day, one day, one day we'll all be reunited and I forced know. to escape from a Harry Potter themed yes. room together. Uh, we were gonna do one, uh, an escape room online, and then I tried to start making it, and it ma- depressed me so much that I was like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. This is gonna make me so sad because Aww. it's so, uh, like it's less fun. Same. Yeah. yeah, it's just not the same. So I was like, let's just hold off and we'll try to figure out how to like fling candy at kids. <laughs> yeah, way more fun. <laughs> way, way more fun. Yeah. All right. Let's let's do this. Let's have okay. a spooky time. All right. So, so to start things off, I have a, a very silly hypothetical question. I love it. So, Emlyn, if you were going to train police and how to do a thorough scientific crime scene investigation but you weren't allowed to visit a real crime scene how would you train them (laughs) are we talking about body farms 
No. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you mean where they grow organs? No, body farms where um people donate their bodies um and oh. they they lay them out and they see how they see no. essentially like community succession of insects that decompose the bodies so that they can age when they find bodies they right. can determine how long they've been dead based on right. the flora and well mostly the fauna that are living yeah. or and and using that host i didn't know that anyone used real human bodies for yeah. that i've only seen there, animals being used there's a um body farm maybe it's called something different but i think it's called a body farm that's in texas related to one of the universities and it's like one of the biggest ones so people donate their bodies when they die and so they put them in like shade yeah um, under different like water treatments and then they just see you know the succession of animals that use those hosts and also like the decomposition process so that they can if they find a body they can kind of figure out how old it is based yeah. on, you know. It's well, super cool. It's, like, really good for, like, forensic stuff. So that's not yeah. what we're talking about. Not exactly. Okay. But you're okay. on kind of the right, like, you're in the right area, the right field. Okay. <laughs> so um, if you couldn't see, like, show a crime scene. Like a real one. Um... Is this the lady who made little models of crime scenes? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's cool. I'm glad you've heard of her. Um, it's clear that I'm <laughs> obsessed with true, true crime. crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was like, oh, we've never like talked about a forensic scientist. So I was yes. looking it up and... She's sort of an unconventional person in the field of forensic science, and we'll see why as we go through her whole story. But I'm our all lady, about this. Yeah, our lady of the hour is Frances Glesner Lee, who is yes. also dubbed the mother of forensic science, sometimes the godmother of forensic science. I don't know, you know, what the difference yeah. is. <laughs> Depends um, if you're Catholic or not. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And she designed crime scene investigative training rooms for homicide detectives in the 1940s. Yes. But they weren't life-size. Yes. They were a series of 19 dollhouse-sized rooms that depicted a variety of mysterious, sometimes gruesome deaths in great detail. And so, yeah, this is who we're going to talk excited. about. Yeah, it's pretty good. And um, <laughs> they're so cool. Yeah. Um, so her yeah, studies, I've seen them. they're called the nutshell studies of unexplained death. And mm-hmm. they changed science forever, forensic science forever. <laughs> and the reason I say this story is unconventional is kind of twofold. For one, she's a late bloomer. And doesn't get involved in science until much later in her life. But also, I love those. some might not consider her a scientist per se. I'm not going to make that judgment. Um, however, she did contribute immensely to this field of science. So uh, we're going to talk about kind of how she did that. 
But I think she is a woman in science, and that's why yes. I'm covering her. And her life is pretty interesting. Um, and it's spooky. So, yeah, and it's a nice, like, Halloween theme, spooky. Oh my gosh. The dollhouse studies are, <laughs> they're so cool. So I, I'm including a link to, like, you can look at, um, let me see. I was going to talk about this later, but there's a link in our description to the Smithsonian. Oh, shoot. I was going to mention this later. I'll get to it later, you guys. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm on the Sorry. edge of my seat. You've, yeah. You've okay. just, you know, let's just get started with the story. Let's get started. With please, story. please do. Okay, so Francis, nicknamed Fanny Glesner, mm-hmm. was born on March 25th, 1878, in Chicago, Illinois, to her parents, John and Francis. Her mom had the same name as her, uh, Glesner. Her family was incredibly wealthy due to her father's immense success in farm manufacturing. So at one point he was the vice president of International Harvester, which is was the fourth largest corporation in America at that time. And one of the largest manufacturing companies in the world. So they lived in what some called Gilded Age luxury. Which the Gilded Age is a period following the American Civil War from the 1870s to the 1900s. The U.S. experienced rapid economic growth and industrialization, which few people really benefited from that growth. (laughs) Um, So it's golden for a few. Yeah, exactly. So there were serious social problems that kept most Americans from accessing any of this new wealth. But there was a lot of wealth accumulated in this time overall. And the Glesners were one of those families that directly benefited from all of this growth. Gotcha. So she was rich, rich. Rich, um, rich. So both of her parents were quite involved in Chicago high society. They held fundraisers. They sat on the board of various art, literary, medical, and social groups. Her mother was very artistic. She knit. She played piano. She was an accomplished seamstress. Um, all things she taught, you know, her kids. And there are 17,000 square foot house in Chicago, which is freaking huge <laughs> in oh Chicago, God. was designed by a famous architect, Henry Hobson Richardson, and is now a designated National Historical Landmark and has been turned into a museum. Okay. So that's just kind of an idea. Like, they lived in a mansion in Chicago, basically. Like, an estate. Mm-hmm. Francis Mansions had one- are spooky. Yeah. And, yeah, you can actually visit the museum even now. So if oh, any- cool. we have any listeners in Chicago, you should go check it out. It looks looks like a really neat, like, old-fashioned house and... They've kept everything pretty much the same. So Francis had one brother, George, and for most of their young life, the two of them were tutored at home, receiving what was a fairly equal education, you know, for that time. Mm -hmm. From an early age, Francis was fascinated by mystery novels like Sherlock Holmes, and this quickly led to an interest in criminology and in becoming a nurse or doctor that investigated death. But I'm guessing for a high society gal, her parents did not want her to do that, you know? Yeah, it seems 
uh, frowned upon. (laughs) Yeah. So although she was very bright and wanted to attend medical school, her father told her, quote, a lady doesn't go to school. And um, the only medical school she was even interested in was Harvard Medical School. And of they, course, I mean, yeah, <laughs> gotta go for the best. Yeah, and they didn't accept female students until 1945, so that wasn't really an option. Nine, oh, 1945. Jesus. Yeah. So once Francis and George reached college age, they took different paths. George mm-hmm. went to Harvard. I think he studied to be a lawyer. I'm not sure. And he took after their father in the family business while Frances spent time traveling in Europe with her mom. She made her formal debut to society. <laughs> she married a lawyer named Blue, I don't know how to say, Blue Lit Lee. Like, I've never heard anyone named Blue Lit. Um, but how do you when, spell that? B L E W L E T T. Like, he blew it? <laughs> yeah, but with another L, like, Blue Lit. <laughs> oh, blue lit. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Um, they got married when she was 19 and she moved into a home her parents had built for her in Blue Lit in Chicago and they had three children. What so, a life. Yeah, just kind of quickly getting into the society life essentially. Mm-hmm. So she and Blue Lit did not get along. There's not that much about their marriage or their time, like what she really did during this time, but it seems like it was just too boring for her in a lot of ways, and the couple eventually divorced after 17 years or so in 1914, and so the now Frances is 36, she's divorced, which is pretty taboo for their society um peeps and mm-hmm. yeah okay so let's see i couldn't find much about her life in this the next like 10 to 20 years or so i'm sure it's <laughs> there's a full biography of okay. her um by group bruce goldfarb called 18 tiny deaths but I didn't get around to reading all of it so it's possible there's more information in there but she was, I mean, she was kind of a wealthy heiress. And so I have a feeling she spent a lot of time just continuing her hobbies, which were mm-hmm. sewing, painting, crafting, reading about crime, <laughs> you know, secretly thinking people. about death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. At some point during this time, she became good friends with a friend of her brother's, George Burgess McGrath who was at the time they met was studying to be a doctor at Harvard Medical School, which is what Francis had wanted to do. Everybody's and a Harvard man. I know. I think, I don't know why she was near Harvard so much because they had a house in New Hampshire, which maybe this house was close to Boston. I get confused yeah. about New England geography a lot, <laughs> but I think they're pretty close. Um, and let's see, he shared... Francis's fascination with death investigation and was Love interested it. in becoming a medical examiner, um, which I'll get to in a sec. So he eventually did become one of the country's first medical examiners, which is just someone who investigates cause of death, which is unlike what's called a coroner, 
a medical examiner actually has a medical degree. So I'll get into the differences between those in just a second. So they became good friends, and he would tell her all about the crimes that he helped solve and all the issues with the criminological system. You know, they would talk for hours about criminological theory and autopsies and what is essentially early forensic science, which wasn't Mm -hmm. widespread at that time. So, Is this the beginning of a budding romance? Is this the kind of like... You know, I don't know if they were ever romantic. Okay. Yeah, which is too bad. I mean, how could it not be with such topics as as <laughs> yeah, death and like autopsies? They would t- I read that they would just talk for hours about like crime scenes and dead people. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just so you know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. So okay. For some background in the on the death investigative system of that time. So in the early 1900s, when Francis Glesner Lee was growing up, most unexpected or mysterious deaths were investigated by coroners who are not doctors and who are not even trained necessarily in forensic science or any kind of death investigation procedures. So (laughs) the National Academy of Medicine distinguishes coroners and medical examiners as such. Coroners are elected lay people who often do not have professional training, whereas medical examiners are appointed and have board certification in a medical specialty. And I don't want to offend anyone listening that is a coroner or knows a coroner, but if I died unexpectedly in the early 1900s, I would not want a coroner investigating my death. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, but in most places at that time, that was all you got. And mm-hmm. today, and partially thanks to Francis Glesner Lee, what's called a coroner's office usually has a mix of people working for it, including medical examiners and forensic pathologists. And coroners themselves often have experience in either these two fields or in criminology or police work or something. Mm-hmm. I find it so strange that coroners are elected officials. Like, yeah, that's just such a strange thing to run for. Well, there was a lot of money in it at that Mm. time. So coroners themselves could be um, bakers, business owners, etc. At the time. Bakers is extremely creepy. Yeah. And very like Sweeney Todd. (laughs) At the time, some coroners would use physicians to assist in determining cause of death, but they weren't required to, and those physicians weren't required to be trained in death investigation. Okay. So they could just be any doctor. So this widespread coroner system was invented in during medieval times, was not based in medicine or science at all, because that just wasn't a thing, really, in medieval (laughs) times. So it's quite antiquated in general in how they investigated crime scenes. From Bruce Goldfarb's book about Francis Glesner Lee, he describes the coroner sister system of that time in great detail and includes a lot of information from an investigation of the 1915 coroner system in New York City, just to give some background on what this all looked like. And in this investigation, 
New York City's city commissioner, Leonard Wallstein, stated that coroners for physicians were, quote, drawn from the ranks of mediocrity. <laughs> and in 40% of the death certificates they reviewed, there was a, quote, complete lack of evidence to justify the cause of death. God. In addition, a coroner secretary named George Lebrum stated in this investigation that New York City's coroners were, quote, outrageous crooks who dispensed justice for cash. Ooh. Yeah. So okay. this wasn't working. Yeah. No. Um, in a broader sense, the issues with death investigation at the time extended beyond the coroner system, where most doctors were not trained well in determining cause of death, and crime scene investigation training for police was minimal, especially mm -hmm. in rural areas where police officers, like coroners, were not even required to know how to read or write. That seems... Seems bad. Like a low bar. Yeah. So one can only imagine how an untrained officer would treat a crime scene. And <laughs> all of these things together led to a, a, quite a few major public scandals in the investigations of mysterious deaths, where it came out in the news, for example, that coroners were, like, passing dead bodies around so that each of them could earn money um, investigating the deaths, because that is how they earn money, gotcha. was by doing a death investigation. Uh, anyway, it was pretty corrupt. <laughs> okay. So... Yeah. Yeah, that's really just to give you some idea of the issues that Francis and George were constantly discussing, like, mm -hmm. how do we improve this whole system? And so she was a huge proponent of replacing coroners entirely with medical examiners. And, um, and talking to her... Yeah, talking to her friend, George, she became concerned, as was he, that most unnatural deaths were not examined by anyone with any training to examine unnatural deaths. Yeah. And given her wealth and status in society, she felt she could make a difference. So this is where she starts getting involved. In yes. In 1931, yes. she donated $250,000, which um, is equivalent in 2005 to 3.5 million dollars is what the All article right. said yeah so she nice. contributed you know maybe that would be five million dollars today i don't know she can donate a bunch of money to harvard to start the department of legal medicine which is now referred to as forensic medicine or forensic science nice and Harvard, she, Harvard, Harvard. Yeah, I don't know why she was so obsessed. It must have just been the number one, right? Yeah. At that time or something. Yeah. And she, in this donation, she hired George McGrath, her friend, as a professor of pathology. And from here on, she would be heavily involved in the development of this department. So, for example, in 1934, a few years later, she started the McGrath Library of Legal Medicine, you know, named after her friend George, mm -hmm. who he by that time was the chief medical examiner in Boston. Nice. And she started the library by essentially donating a thousand books and manuscripts on forensic science to Harvard. 
And these were like her own collections, a lot of these books. <laughs> so she had been like studying this for years, presumably. I don't know if she had actually read all thousands of those books. I'm sure some of them probably came from somewhere else, but still. Yeah. In 1938, so Frances is now 60 years old, and both of her parents have passed away. She has more money than ever, and she decides to permanent, permanently move into her parents' summer home in New Hampshire. At this time, she also becomes a volunteer police officer. And I wish oh, I cool. knew more about what this m- meant or like what she did. It's probably in Bruce Goldfarb's book. So I recommend like listening to that or reading it. In 1943, um, Francis was appointed an honorary ca- captain in the New Hampshire State Police. The first woman in the United States to hold such a position. Nice. Yeah. And from that point on, she asked everyone to call her Captain Francis Glesner Lee, which is kind of yeah. awesome. I would also ask people to do that. Yeah. Um, okay. And around this time is when she also began holding training lectures for forensic police officers. So she started these lectures called the Harvard Seminars in Homicide Investigation because she felt, you know, that police officers just did not know how to look for evidence in crime scenes. Mm-hmm. And especially for evidence that would help medical examiners or the police themselves to determine cause of death. Yeah. And it was for these seminars that she began making the dioramas or nutshell studies of unexplained death to teach police officers the skills of observation, deduction, reasoning, critical thinking, and other scientific skills. So the name of these come from a motto. She often heard police detectives repeating, which was quote, convict the guilty, clear the innocent and find the truth in a nutshell. So that's why they're called the nutshell studies, which I, I just like assumed that. she had like used nutshells to make something until I read, <laughs> read that or something. <laughs> so, um, the, yeah. And the reason for making these dioramas was pretty simple. She couldn't, she wanted to hold these seminars, these training seminars for police, but they couldn't guarantee that a good crime scene would be available during the training seminars. <laughs> Nor do so, you want to really, yeah, bank on that or hope. Well, I hope there's a really nasty crime during a right. seminar. And so she decided to make some more harmless crime scenes of her own. Love okay. It. Also, so, what a fun activity. Yeah, and she, like, made dollhouses and stuff her whole life. Like, that's mm-hmm. a hobby of her. So this was kind of a fun way to mix her two <laughs> interests, I guess. Yeah. So the dioramas themselves are probably what she's most famous for. Throughout the 1940s, she made 19... 30s and 40s, she made 19 miniature dioramas that portrayed unnatural deaths. So imagine a dollhouse room, but instead of, like, cute smiling dolls and neat tiny furniture, the dolls are all dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, they're these things are so creepy. They're really creepy. And they're so um, detailed. Yeah, their death 
is mysterious and you have to figure out how they died by looking at a series of incredibly intricate and puzzling clues around the room. Um, So these rooms, which were each carefully crafted by Francis over a period of almost six months each and $6,000 each, (sighs) which some sources said was the going rate for houses at that time, like she's basically (laughs) building a house. Um, Oh, my God. She usually combined... To create them, she usually combined real crime scene descriptions to come up with the ideas and details for each room. And then she would design wooden furniture that her carpenter crafted for her <laughs> while she sewed, painted, and constructed every other aspect of the room herself. So it was really so down to the details for her like she was very she spent a lot of time and energy making these the best crime scenes for training police that she could (laughs) think of um okay i'm going to describe some of the one of the scenes which uh, do you think we should put like a timestamp in the description you think people would want to skip ahead and not hear the description. I feel like people want, will want to play this game. Okay, okay. All right. I'm just going to say, if you don't want to hear descriptions of murder mm. or death, even though they're fake, you can fast forward like one or two minutes. Because yeah. I'm not describing all of them. Just yeah. going to describe one so everyone okay. can kind of get a picture. Okay. So the first model she ever made, uh, which finished in 1943, was called... The Case of the Hanging Farmer. And it shows just that. A man hanging from a rope in a barn. His face painted a light purple. Oh. It's so dark. Like, I can't even... It's incredibly, like, gruesome and grisly. <laughs> these All of these scenes. The barn has details like hay bales, a horseshoe hanging over the entrance, a tiny wasp nest farmer's tools strewn about and she included fabricated crime scene statements um, from those who found the bodies mm-hmm. in this hypothetical scene so when you look at the scene you also have like a little note card from things that would police might have asked someone at the scene at the time yeah. you know so in this case his quote wife told police quote police When things did not suit Eben, he would go into the barn, stand on a bucket, put a noose around his neck, and threaten suicide. I always talked him out of it. On this afternoon, he made the usual threats, but this time I did not follow him to the barn right away. When I did, I found him hanging there with his feet through a wooden crate. Okay. But in the model, he's not standing on a bucket. The bucket is askew in another part of the barn, and he's standing on a wooden crate. So what happened? Well, one might say that he was only threatening to commit suicide again, but the bucket fell and he accidentally died. Mm -hmm. Um, While others say he was actually intending to commit suicide and did so when his wife didn't come. Uh, which in some places was actually a crime at the time, so it was important to consider was this intentional or not. Gotcha. And so these are things that Francis wanted the police to 
look at the dioramas, look for all the clues, you know, read this testimonial and try to determine how this man actually died, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah. Um, but we'll never know the answer because she did not give solutions to any of the crimes. Oh, interesting. Or any of the scenes. Because, you know, just like a real crime scene, you'll never really know unless somebody Mm -hmm. confesses or something, right? Yeah. So it was really just left up to investigators to thoroughly look for details and try to determine what had happened given what they had. I wonder if she... Like when she makes them, she hasn't like she knows what happened. Yeah, right. I wondered that too, and I wish there may actually be answers somewhere, but Mm -hmm. they don't give them to the um to lay people. Gotcha. Like when these are in museums, they don't display the answer because they want Uh people to reason through it the way you know they ask like police officers to in the trainings. Mm Hmm. Oh, so do you know if the police officers ever got answers? Um, maybe they did. Maybe okay. they did. Yeah, but I'm not 100 percent sure, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so that's just one example. Another depicts the bloody death of a whole family across multiple rooms, including the death of a child in a crib with blood splat- spattered Ugh. on the wall behind the crib onto the intricate wallpaper. I mean, they're dark, like, (laughs) in a different diorama, I'm not going to describe all of them, just kind of the variety. Mm -hmm. Um, In a different one, a woman is found dead at the bottom of the stairs by her husband. You know, the question is, was she pushed or did she fall? Another depicts a woman dead in her kitchen with the gas jets to the stove on and the doors locked. But there's a freshly baked cake on the counter and ice trays on the floor. The question is, did she commit suicide or was somebody else there? So there, a lot of them have all these different, they're depicting all these different types of crimes or potential mm-hmm. crimes or potential accidents. Yeah. And they're really, all the details are, are really kind of insane. Okay, here it is. So I urge anyone that's interested to check out pictures of them online. They're super interesting. Um, and you can virtually explore them now on the Smithsonian American Art Museum's website, which we'll have a link to in the episode description. And yeah, so each one of these dioramas was carefully designed to teach crime scene investigators how to look for evidence. So how to use observational skills and critical thinking and build an evidence-based case for why they thought someone might have died. And she would place like brand name mini cigarette butts that she had literally burned by hand on some of the scenes. There were overturned chairs, pieces of clothing or half eaten food items. And all of it was important information that police needed to learn how to interpret. So, so she crazy. also used these dioramas to advocate somewhat for marginalized victims. So she typically depicted people um, that were poor or discriminated against. One of her dioramas is about the death of a sex worker, and another is about the death of a prisoner. She wanted the police officers 
training with dioramas um, to look for evidence objectively and scientifically, replacing their biases with facts. And they, she wanted to teach them to treat all in death, treat all death investigations with respect and care. Hmm. No, that's that's really important because like for so long, like sex workers, they're like, well, we don't really care. Yeah, I mean, even now, I think. Even, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gotten better, but I think that yeah. at that time being like, you should investigate this like all other crimes. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so now I've described that we've kind of described the dioramas. Um, we'll go over kind of the rest of her contributions and activities in forensic science. So the first seminar she held with these dioramas was in 1945. And beyond learning scientific investigation skills through the nutshell studies, the police officers were also learning about forensic science from experts in death investigation who would lecture on topics like how to identify victims, how to determine time of death, and more. And these week-long trainings of 20 to 40 policemen would typically end with a big fancy banquet hosted by Francis <laughs> where they could all network and talk more freely um, and just learn from each other a little bit more casually. So she would lead the seminars as a host, often bringing her own encyclopedia of knowledge about criminological theory and medical examination to the table for discussions mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't just the funder, like she was, they were learning from her too. And that's what a lot of the officers would say. And hundreds of police officers from across the country were trained by her in this way to think scientifically and to learn proper methods for investigating death. So this is why, you know, she's dubbed the mother of forensic science. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that police officers or detectives couldn't train at all outside of the dioramas. And most police units, you know, they train on the job where Mm -hmm. they follow a senior officer to a crime scene. And, you know, they learn while they're there what to do, maybe. Um, But these studies were important because they allowed the students more time and um, probably made it slightly easier to learn how to observe objectively because you're kind of one emotional step like removed from a real crime scene where learning on the job like it must be kind of traumatic (laughs) i would guess in a (laughs) lot of ways absolutely so yeah in some ways she kind of sounds like a quirky rich lady, but she was also highly respected by criminologists and still is today. Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason mysteries, um, was a close friend of Captain Francis Lee. (laughs) (laughs) And he wrote that a person studying these models can learn more about circumstantial evidence in an hour than he could learn in months of abstract study. So, Frances passed away in 1962, and five years after her death, Harvard actually shut down its forensic department and put the dioramas in storage. 
Hmm. I'm not sure why. It could just be that it wasn't a priority or they didn't have the funding to continue it. Um, But an old student of hers who had become the chief medical examiner of Maryland asked if they could use them in training students in their offices. And so they have been there ever since in Maryland on permanent loan. Love it. Yeah, and they are still being used for police trainings today and have also been professionally restored and used in <laughs> art displays, you know, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a broader sense, she had an incredibly large impact on the field of forensic science, given that she was one of the first people in the U.S. to fund and play a large role in running a forensic science program and a program that trained so many people. Mm-hmm. And then in a broader sense, she... Or, sorry, in a less broad sense, she's just a cool person that made these creepy dioramas that are just so (laughs) fascinating to look at on their own, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's the story of Captain Francis Glesner Lee. That's amazing. So, uh, for the timeline, did she give that, like, in in today's money, three and a half million dollars to Harvard during a time when Harvard medical school didn't still didn't let women enroll yeah which i didn't even think about that yep she did man that's just remarkable and frustrating but that's i'm i like at that time so she she then got involved in that department and that was probably the only way she was able to do that at the time because she wasn't allowed to be probably hired or be a student and if you look at pictures of her in these training seminars, she's always the only woman. There are no, mm-hmm. like, women police officers either. So she was the only woman in kind of, like, the medical, at least in the death investigation, the medical examiner part of Harvard's medical school, um, and the only woman in this forensic department at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, she talks about, I mean... This was kind of her only way in, too, was her money. Yeah. And, like, this crafting and, um, like, she had all the expertise and the knowledge, but without, you know, funding this large department, she wouldn't have had the power or control, you know, over what was being taught or anything like that. Um, yeah. It was or really be able to have any in. role in forensic yeah. science at all. Yeah, exactly. So it's cool that she decided to to use her her extreme wealth like <laughs> to do this. Um and yeah, it seems like she really made an impact given mm-hmm. what people today even say about her. So that's really cool. Yeah. The, these these stories like she's awesome and I've heard about her in like a very uh, uh, a lot of different contexts and i didn't know yeah. how, how wealthy she was but it is also so frustrating when you look back and you think like how many other people had these ty- how many other women had these types of interests but not the means to right. um, or the time or yeah. the time to to get into this system and like it's not a meritocracy like i right. mean she was definitely deserving but you know only because she also had money in addition to expertise was she able to break that barrier. 
Right, yeah, and, like, connections, Mm -hmm. you know, to the school through her brother and her brother's friends, and, yeah. Um, Yeah. But that's awesome. Even, like, looking for other women in who made, like, major scientific contributions to forensic science, it's really hard to find anyone until, like, more recently, Mm -hmm. which is really sad because you know, women weren't allowed to become doctors or, like, police officers, you know, until more recently, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it was, her story is, like, very different, and <laughs> some might say she's not a scientist, but she still, like, contributed a lot to this field of science, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I count it. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, I count it too, for sure. I love yeah. it. That's it's awesome. And like, that's so uh, wonderfully creepy. They are yeah, so like, wonderfully creepy when you see them. And I wish people could see, like, you guys gotta go look at the dioramas. Yeah, if you you're have to. at all, like, not totally creeped out <laughs> or just interested. <laughs> like, they're fascinating and gory and weird and just, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice Halloween spookiness for your week. <laughs> I love it. I've been so I've been watching a lot of Survivor and I've been surprised like <laughs> yeah. the last two the last two seasons. So like this season there's a mortician, which I don't really know Ooh. what the difference between a mortician and Mortician is like they deal with the um the funeral services okay. and okay. the burial. Yeah. Okay. Um and another person in it was a grave digger. And someone oh. asked them, like, the first day what his, like, what he does for a living because he's, like, jacked. Uh, and he just said, I bury dead people. Oh, my God. And it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's so intense. <laughs> but he's great. Uh, yeah. That's but, funny. yeah. So that's awesome. That was a great, great Halloween one. Yeah, I was like, oh, I could do, like, parasites, or I don't know. It's always fun to think of something, like, gross, but, yeah, I'm glad that she exists and we could talk about her. Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of parasites, the Lincoln Project put out a, I don't know how recently this was, but put out a, like, um, ad talking about how Lindsey Graham is a parasite, and they do a lot of, like, defining what a parasite is, and, like, not necessarily correctly, (laughs) and I want to do, like, a parasitologist reacts to a parasite. The Lincoln Lincoln Project's, like, defining what a parasite is and being like, well, that's not what, like, like, this is a good description and this isn't. Uh, I probably won't do that, but I've been thinking about it, like, for the past four days. It's like how I always get annoyed when people call any mutualistic relationship a symbiotic relationship. And I'm going to be like, well, symbiotic doesn't necessarily mean it's mutualist. <laughs> you ever notice that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm like, a symbiont sometimes is a parasite or not, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's little things that we notice, but other people like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, especially, like, there's so many words that in the lexicon mean one thing and to a scientist mean another thing. Yeah. Alright, this is the spooky edition of the women who work section. Badass witches. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
probably not badass ladies. I mean, yeah. Making history today. All right. So mine is spooky. You, okay, you, okay. Let, you let me know if it's spooky. I find it spooky. <laughs> uh, spooky that it took so long for women to be equal. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, so this week my shout out goes to Dr. Andrea Gez, uh, who's an astronomer at UCLA, for jointly winning a Nobel Prize in Physics for her discovery and verification of a supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy. Oh, wait. Of our galaxy. I feel stupid because I did <laughs> – I only heard about the um, the women who won the Nobel Prize for freaking CRISPR. <laughs> That's it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. But cool, yes. So, she, yes. I mean, she won it with two other men. Yeah, they, they often – yeah. Split them now, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I guess one thing that's spooky about this is she's only the fourth woman to win a physics Nobel Prize. Oh, my God. That's, ah. <laughs> like, I'm scared. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, but the other thing is black holes, in my mind, are very spooky because they're yes. objects so massive that the gravitational pull prevents even light from escaping. Oh, which makes them invisible because light can't. Yeah. Like, so it's just like such a nebulous, invisible force that nothing can escape from. So look, ever since I spooky. saw the movie Event Horizon, which is a great scary movie. Okay, for- I've never heard of this. Real? Oh my god! No, Andres knows it, and you okay. guys have to watch it. Okay, like he's gonna make. I hope he makes you watch it. Okay, it's the okay. best. <laughs> Event Horizon. Yes, it's so creepy. It's all about a black hole, and Ooh. they're visiting. They get on a spaceship close to the black hole, and guess what? <gasps> Scary things start to happen. Is it a good Halloween movie? I've yes. been looking for it. Ooh, okay. Well, I have to it's watch. It's terrifying, yes. but also so campy and bad. Like it's uh, the best I love that kind of scary movie. Yeah. Yes, that is absolutely the best. But ever okay. since I saw that movie, that's what I imagine happens every time any person gets near a black hole. Yeah. So, go so on. <laughs> you you agree that black holes are very spooky? Yes. Yes. All right. So, um, yeah, black hole spooky. So Doctor gets for this work, worked at the the Keck Observatory telescopes on uh, in Hawaii. Um, oh, and nice. she convinced the observatory to alter how their near-infrared camera equipment was being used. Um, so th- this was both unheard of and also kind of risky for the equipment. So she wanted the equipment to work differently. Mm-hmm. And the near-infrared cameras were never designed to do what Andrea – or to what – to do what Dr. Getz needed, um, which was she needed an ultra-fast readout of images and then a restacking of the result to remove the effects of the atmospheric turbulence just to get, I think, clearer images. Oh. And although they first said no, through her perseverance and determination, she convinced them, and then through an insane amount of hard work to make sense of this new data that she got, she found the first evidence of stars orbiting an invisible and extremely heavy object which wow. was um, a, a supermassive black hole. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. That's really cool. And so throughout her career, she's pushed for new technologies, which then in turn, she's used um, to amass more evidence of the existence of this supermassive black hole in the center of our universe. Wow, that's amazing. I know. And so her work combined with the work of Dr. Reinhard Getzel, um, who's sharing the Nobel Prize with her, they've both, they kind of have two separate teams who have in parallel been amassing an extraordinary amount of evidence for the existence of this super massive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Oh my gosh. Um, And they also share this Nobel Prize with Dr. Roger Penrose, who wrote out the math for the existence of black holes in the 1960s. Oh, wow. So three of them kind of share this Nobel Prize. So my shout out goes to Dr. Andrea Getz for her creepy, um, <laughs> creepy finding of the existence of a massive, a supermassive black hole in the middle of our galaxy. Uh, wait, do you know when, do you, do you know, like when she f- figured that out? Um, no, I mean, I, I think... Like twenty five years ago was the, maybe the first evidence because it. Yeah. From what I was reading, I think they've been amassing evidence. Like new technologies have improved, um, and so they've amassed this huge amount of evidence that, like, the only thing that makes sense possibly right. is it being a supermassive black hole. So I think it's been twenty five years in the making of amassing all this evidence. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it looks like on Wikipedia maybe two thousand twelve. Was when this discovery. Oh, okay. Happened. Oh, wait. No, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe earlier than that. I for- It's hard to tell. Whatever. Yeah. But that's awesome. Yeah. And super. Ugh, thinking about stuff like that just makes me be like, what are we even doing like, <laughs> as a society? <laughs> a lot of things make me feel Everybody that way these just, days. I just wish everyone would just chill and like. <laughs> be cool <laughs> you know it's all right nobody go just don't go cl- close to the black hole yeah <laughs> and we're, we'll be fine yeah oh man that's cool yeah it's i i find it really amazing the i didn't realize that the reason it's a black hole is because light can't escape because of the gravitational like force that's just, I can't even, like, grasp that in a yeah. physical sense. I know. a lot. Is, I mean, a lot of, like, <laughs> astrophysics and, and physics in general. I'm like, meh. I, don't. I, I read just, these words, but yeah, I still can't grasp Yeah, it just makes me, them. like, it makes me go, like, very internal and start thinking about, like, <laughs> I'm just like, what the, like, in my head. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. All right. So that was our spooky Halloween episode. Yeah, spectacular. Um, and especially I- I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pull a pl- put a plug in. It's October 26th when this episode comes out. If you have not voted, please, please Lit. vote. If you haven't Lit. sent in your ballot, please send in your ballot. Yeah. I don't want to get Got into it. it. But please, no, no. please vote. It's very, very do important. Do it. Do it. Don't make us go into a black hole of sadness. Oh boy, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening to this episode uh, and for 
listening to our podcast. If you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share, let people know. Tell people to yeah. listen to our spooky episode. Um, our next episode will probably be in two weeks. So we'll. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll let y'all know. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I, I doubt and before the election, I'm going to have the capacity to do anything productive. Ooh. Oh, boy. <laughs> Forgot. Maybe even Maybe after. Else. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so thank every thanks everybody <laughs> for tuning in, and thank you Artichoke for our awesome theme mu- music, and for Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. And, and as oh wait wait can, is there like a Halloween version of stimulate yourself? Spookulate yourself. Sounds spook. Stimulate your ghost. No, that sounds gross. <laughs> go, I mean, go, stimulate yourself. yourself. Go, boo. boo. All right, bye, everybody. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Boo, everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.